most people don't really think about their ice cube tray unless, of course, they work at OXO. Lua O'Brien is a category director at OXO, and she says the no-spill ice cube tray might just be her favorite product. So the sealed lid means that you're able to kind of put it at a little bit of an angle and it won't drip water anywhere. What's special about the rounded ice cubes is as soon as you crack the tray, all of them become free. It means that you can get every ice cube out of the tray really cleanly, making for just a really awesome experience. OXO solves problems you didn't even know you had. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Has this ever happened to you? You want to make something for dinner or bake some sort of dessert that maybe you had your mind on. So you begin to gather your supplies, only to find out that you don't have all the ingredients or the necessary equipment or you're out of time. So what do you do? You wing it. You go off script. You start to add things to the mix that have absolutely no right being there. Sure, you tell yourself, grape jelly is a fine substitute for red wine, right? Well, sometimes it's a failure. But sometimes it turns into something amazing. And life can do this as well. It conspires with history, conflict, and circumstance to create something or some place that just shouldn't work. But yet, it thrives. And today's story is about such a place. A place in Mexico that, through a series of difficult events, came to produce some of the world's most interesting wine. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. As soon as you cross the border from San Diego into Baja, California, you notice like a change in the air. I don't know. For me, it's really this special kind of randomness that just seems to infuse everything from the architecture to the language. That's Maya Croth, our reporter on the story, and she should know. She lived on the U.S. side in San Diego for almost a decade while working as a journalist. I met all kinds of unusual people while I was reporting on the border. Like, there's this one guy who drives around Tijuana in a van that he's just completely covered with, like, stuffed animals and plastic toys that he's glued on everywhere. There's this other guy who built a five-story tall statue of a naked lady in his backyard and then decided to live inside of it. (laughs) Why did he do that? I mean, because he could, I guess, Uh, because nobody told him he couldn't. See, this is like one of the things that I love so much about this part of Mexico. As much as like we American kids are raised with this idea of, you know, the United States is the land of the free— Every time I crossed the border into Mexico, I couldn't help but feel a little freer somehow. I really started falling in love with Baja about 10 or 12 years ago. I was working as a food and travel writer, and people had started telling me about this place called the Valle de Guadalupe. They said it was like the Napa Valley of Mexico, this magical place with amazing restaurants and good wine. It's about an hour and a half south of the border, just inland from a city called Ensenada. 
and it was kind of hard to get to in those days. Most of the roads were not paved, so anytime it rained, they would just get flooded and get totally washed out. But if you could get there, you found this place that felt kind of like a miracle. Like here's this gorgeous valley surrounded by purple mountains, there's cows grazing on the side of the road, and the hillsides are studded with these massive boulders that almost make it look like you're on Mars or, or on the moon or something. And back then, there were so few tourists around that it kind of felt like you were on another planet sometimes too. In 200 meters, turn left. So I went back to Baja recently, and not just because I'd heard the roads had gotten better since my last visit, but I also wanted to find out how this weird little miracle came to be. And what did you learn when you went? Well, I learned a lot, but um, I learned that Baja wines are the product of centuries of happy accidents. Like you have all these factors, right? Climate, migration, invasions, religion, prohibition, and then a bunch of just these brave, driven individuals. And all of these factors conspire to bring us to the present day when Baja has become one of the most interesting wine regions in the world. My journey starts in kind of an unexpected place. This is the Russian cemetery. David Bibayov, a local winemaker, parks his truck on a dusty, unpaved road. Stray dogs and chickens roam around, and I can smell meat roasting at some taqueria nearby. David leads me into a fenced-off plot of land where a few dozen gravestones are barely visible underneath all these overgrown weeds. A couple graves have fresh flowers, but most look like they haven't been visited in years. One of my brothers that got uh, burned dead was very here. We wade through brush up to our knees and try to read the headstones, which are mostly hand-carved with Cyrillic lettering. My Russian is not good for reading. I know some letters. Mine isn't much better, but I try to sound it out. Grigor. Grigor. Fonian. Afonian. Afonian, yeah. This was the last name, Afonian, yeah. Died in 1931. And are your parents here? Right here, these two. He points to two unmarked graves where his parents were buried about 15 years ago. And so you said you still have to do the headstone. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time. Well, they're waiting for me. David's got this prominent nose and high cheekbones that seem so familiar to me, so much like those of my own Russian relatives. When he dies, he'll also be buried here, next to his parents. And this valley will have lost one of its last eyewitnesses to a peculiar era in the history of Mexican wine. But what are all these dead Russians doing here, of all places? Everything you see here are mementos from the Russian families who came here in 1905, fleeing persecution from Tsar Nicholas II. More than 105 families established themselves here in the Valley of Guadalupe with the idea of working the land and preserving their Malacan religion. That's Francisca Samarin. They call her Pancha. She's a Mexican woman who married into one of these founding families many years ago. 
she runs a small museum in town that's dedicated to preserving the history of these Russian settlers, the Molokans. There are all kinds of things on display. Photographs, documents, samovars that the Molokans brought with them from Russia. It's crazy to think that they left their entire lives behind, picked up and moved here with nothing but the clothes on their back and like a samovar. Well, what does that word mean? What does Molokan mean? So Molokan comes from Molokoa, which is Russian for milk. It was kind of a pejorative label because the Russian Orthodox Church used to forbid drinking milk during fasting periods. But this group did it anyway. We're talking like 300 years ago or something like that. So the Molokans were to the Orthodox Church kind of like Protestants were to Catholics. And they had these dietary restrictions that were similar to, like, the rules for kosher Jews. No pork, no shellfish, no alcohol. Well, wait, we're talking about wine here. So what's their connection if they weren't drinking any alcohol? <laughs> right. Well, first of all, it's up to interpretation how strictly they <laughs> individual families interpreted those rules. But Basically, the answer is that they were farmers. They knew how to grow stuff. So when they came to Mexico, they grew wheat, they grew barley, and they grew grapes. Here's Pancha again. Los rusos solo miraban la cuestión de la uva como un producto que había que vender, como religión. The Russians saw grapes as just a product to sell. Wine was forbidden by their religion. But it was an open secret that everybody had their little barrel of wine that they would drink. The Samarins and the Bibayovs are just two of more than a hundred Russian families who came over to Mexico in the first decades of the 20th century. At one point, nearly every agricultural plot in this valley was owned by someone with a Russian surname. By Alejandro Dalgos, uh, Basilio Samadurov, Juan Rogov, uh, Michikov, Mohov, Samarin, Kachiriskis. Russians came because those days, this part of the world used to need to be colonized. All right, well, what does that mean, need to be colonized? What did David mean by that? I think what he meant was that there was basically nobody living in this part of Baja at a certain point in Mexican history where the government really needed to have people living there. Like, opportunistic Americans were always just invading this part of Mexico because there was hardly anybody living there to stop them. There were like 7,000 people in 1850 that lived on the entire 800-mile-long peninsula. One guy, one American guy, William Walker, he even led his own military expedition here, declared himself the president, and tried to start operating Baja as a slave state. Newspapers in California openly advocated for just annexing Baja altogether. Lower California we must have. It belongs naturally to Alta California. The peninsula in the hands of the Mexican government is worthless to them and always will be. The government of this country must buy it, or we will have to take it for our own protection. The Mexican government, which already had to sign over half its territory to the U.S. in the Gadsden Purchase of 1854, they realized that if they wanted to avoid losing even more land, they needed more people in Baja. 
So they started selling tracts of farmland to people like the Molokans, as well as all these other refugees from places like Germany and Spain and Italy, uh, people who were looking to escape rising tensions in Europe. Even Chinese immigrants who had been expelled from California after building the railroads, they were settling in Baja. I think the government figured that if they gave these people land, they would have a vested interest in protecting it from marauding Americans. Did that end up being a, a winning strategy? <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, it worked for a time, but um, it came with its own problems. In the 1950s, Mexican squatters came and claimed the Russians' land for themselves. The Molokans are sort of a pacifist people, so instead of fighting, they just left. And where did they go? Well, most of them went to L.A., where you can still find a large Molokan community. Um, a couple families stayed in Mexico and intermarried. And so while there are still Bibayofs and Kachiriskis living in the area, David is one of the only ones left with any real connection to the language and the customs of those original settlers. So... Even though he looks Russian, David is definitely Mexican. When I ask him if he speaks any Russian, he says, <laughs> That means my Russian's not very good. <laughs> okay, well, if the Russians are no longer there, they've left. What happened to the wine? So like I mentioned earlier, the Russians weren't really winemakers. They were farmers. So they grew the grapes, and it was mostly Italians who were turning those grapes into wine. Immigrants from the old world who had brought their winemaking know-how to Mexico, starting in about the 1930s. So by the time you get to the 1980s or so, there's just a handful of big Baja wineries who are making about 90% of the wine produced in Mexico. The problem was, it wasn't that great. Grapes have been here for 500 years, but we inherited the tradition without really understanding what it was for. That's Hugo da Costa, a winemaker who was born in central Mexico and cut his teeth at one of those big wineries back in the 80s. Sporting a tidy head of salt and pepper hair, he's sort of the godfather of modern Baja winemaking even though he's too humble to accept that title. In wine, everything came from somewhere else. From the 1930s onward, you can clearly see important changes related to specific migrations. The arrival of Italian winemaking, French, Spanish. Hugo studied winemaking in Bordeaux, so he saw the valley's potential. With its Mediterranean climate and mineral-rich soil, the result of the peninsula being underwater for millions of years. The warm summer sun gently ripens the grapes during the day, while the mists that roll in off the ocean cool them down at night. And yet, farmers were abandoning their vineyards because they couldn't make a living selling grapes to these big producers for pennies. Ugo wanted to change that by educating the farmers about what they were growing, and maybe even get them to start making wine themselves. They just saw grapes as raw material. They never understood them as an ingredient. So we thought it was important to add value to these vineyards in order to save them. So about 20 years ago, Hugo opened a little school where he turned amateurs into winemakers. More small wineries opened up and the quality got a lot better. Well, what did those Mexican wines taste like at that point? 
So at that point, the valley started gaining a reputation for making big, bold, concentrated wines from grapes like Nebbiolo, Tempranillo, Cab Franc. A lot of people credit Ugo with really putting Baja wines on the map. So for my next stop on this journey, I tracked down one of his former students, this quirky British expat named Phil Gregory. Phil's winery is called Venacava, and it sits at the end of a very bumpy dirt road, next to this pretty little duck pond, surrounded by lavender fields and blooming wildflowers as far as the eye can see. Phil himself has sort of shaggy gray hair, this close-trimmed beard, and a curious habit of replying to straightforward questions with contradictory answers. Like, when I ask him to explain what makes the soil here so good for growing grapes, he says... The soil is pretty bad, which means that it's very good. They like to be a little bit stressed. They usually grow better in sandier soil, which doesn't quite have the nutrient value of the dark, peaty soil that you might have in the bottom of one valley. So the soil here, it's not very good for growing many things, but it's pretty good. It's very good for growing grapes. In addition to Venacava, Phil also runs a small hotel and restaurant with his wife Eileen. I was clearly born in England. I met my wife in the Caribbean. We were both independently sailing. And after we got together, we spent some years living in Florida, then moved for about 20 years to Los Angeles, where we worked in the film and music business. About 15 years ago, they decided they were ready to escape it all and retire to Mexico. We came to live in the middle of nowhere. That was our intention. But it it was a really beautiful middle of nowhere. And back in those days, 16 years ago, there were a few people that we heard about who made wine. And I think I was probably about winemaker number 20, more or less, when I started to learn how to make wine. And now there, there are probably 170. There must be at least 170, maybe quite a few more. So it's no longer the middle of nowhere at all. Phil learned how to make wine from Ugo, and when he opened Venacava, he hired Ugo's little brother, Alejandro, to design it. So just to give you some context, what Ugo da Costa did for Baja wine, Alejandro did for Baja architecture. Just like his brother used whatever resources were available to make great wines, Alejandro in his buildings uses recycled local materials in unexpected ways like turning a sailboat into a tasting room. Wait, he turned what into a tasting room? (laughs) A sailboat. Yeah, picture this. A massive, rusted sailboat flipped upside down, miles away from the sea. That's what you walk into when you walk into Phil Gregory's tasting room. This is so weird. Like, we're inside an upside-down ship. We're in a shipwreck. Yes, we're in a shipwreck. That's right. Light filters in through tiny little windows in the roof. These windows are actually discarded lenses that Alejandro got from a nearby eyeglass factory. It is, like everything else around here, weird, anarchic, surprising, resourceful. And when the room was dug out, then the boat was dragged here from Ensenada. It was an abandoned boat. And it was sitting the correct way up on the trailer when it arrived. And another really talented guy lifted the boat up in the air, turned it upside down, swung it around about 90 degrees and dropped it exactly in place. It's a bright, sunny spring afternoon, and we're inside the boat tasting Phil's Blanc de Noir, a pale pink wine pressed very quickly from red grapes. 
So what, you, what I'm looking for here is a very fresh, summery kind of wine that you can drink all afternoon, but it's made out of red grapes. Because it's Mexico, you're very often sitting outside on a beautiful day, spending long periods having lunch or dinner with a lot of friends, and you don't want to be drinking heavy red wines all the time, or you can't drink them all day long. So fewer of the wines are in the style of, let's say, Robert Parker, the big reds, the California reds. It's just too much. We're trying to pull the alcohol level down. We're trying to get the flavors more elegant rather than strong. So it sounds like things are maybe starting to shift away from the big, bold California red wines, you know, those chewy, meaty ones, to something that's a bit more drinkable, a little lighter. And that makes total sense to me because that's the kind of wine that this particular place itself would demand. Yeah. In some wineries, yes, you're seeing more natural wines, more easy drinking wines. And in some ways, this is like a natural evolution for the place and the time. But it also fits with trends that we're seeing in wine globally. And Phil says that part of what he loves about making wine here is that he has that freedom to make changes and experiment. Whereas in the rest of Mexico, people have been there for many, hundreds and thousands of years. Yeah. But literally, there were, of course, there were just a few people living around here. It does mean that people are more adventurous because there are no rules from the past. There are no laws from the past that tell us what we have to do. If it's winemaking, I have great freedom here more than most winemakers in the rest of the world. Phil's teacher, Hugo da Costa, told me something similar. What's happening now is that new generations have gone out, seen the world, and have a new way of understanding their own roots. We're seeing totally new ideas. These new generations have access to technology that lets them be much more daring in their winemaking. After the break, we'll meet members of this daring new generation and find out what Al Capone and a naked Frenchman have to do with Mexican wine. Well, it's time for this week's Bob's Red Mill Quiz, and today it's all about nutritional yeast, specifically how much my colleague Lon Lamb knows about it. So we're going to give her a call. Hello. Hey, Lon. Hi, Bridget. All right, I'm going to jump right in. It's a quiz. And which of the following are good uses for Bob's Red Mill's nutritional yeast? A, sprinkling over popcorn. B, sprinkling over pizza. Or C, baking bread. I've had nutritional yeast on popcorn, and it's cheesy and delicious. Probably tastes great on pizza, too. But I don't think you can bake with it. I don't think those yeast cells are alive. You win. You're right on the money. What do I get? Well, your prize is... Uh, I can't hear you right. Uh, I'm probably going through a tunnel or something. But anyway, Bob's Red Mill's nutritional yeast is a healthful alternative to grated cheese and a wide variety of dishes. Learn more at bobsredmill.com. Kohler faucets are incredibly functional. They're hard-wearing, and they feature sprays with some really cool technology. The powerful, precise ring spray is great for everyday cleanup, but for really tough jobs, there's the sweep spray. Its wide blade of water forcefully pushes food off the plate and scraps right down the drain. Now, if you need even more power to clean or you want to fill a pot with water super fast, Boost Spray technology increases the flow rate of water by 30%. But sometimes a gentle approach is best. 
Think of washing delicate fruits and vegetables with no bruising or tearing. The Berry Soft Spray with its wide light spray is perfect for that job. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Sure, everyone knows that sous vide is great for cooking steak and eggs, but it can do so much more. And that's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. I went into the test kitchen to find out what my colleagues do with theirs. This roast beef that we have, we set it to a really low temperature and we let it go overnight. The collagen breaks down, the meat gets super, super tender. Basically prime rib, but a quarter of the price. Polenta grits, normally that's a very hands-on dish. You have to like stir it a lot. Sous vide is pretty cool for it because it's hands-off. I actually have a couple of things in the sous vide bath right now, this very moment as we speak. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2019. Before the break, we were talking with reporter Maya Croth about the history of winemaking in Baja, California. So Maya, who are the winemakers that are now giving us a glimpse of the future of Baja wine? Well, the first one is a woman called Lulu Martinez Ojeda. So I'm uh, Lulu Martinez Ojeda. I'm the winemaker here at, uh, at Bruma. My grandfather was actually the first mayor of Ensenada. And uh, <laughs> when I was 18, I wanted to study law, international law. So I went to France. The grandfather of the, of the host family that I was with loved wine. And he developed a game where he decanted uh, bottles in a decanter, and I was supposed to guess the varietal or the year or the region. He actually <laughs> gave me a book, you know, the Pour les Nuls, the um, Wine for Dummies, and I read everything. And I said, okay, I'm dropping out of law and, and trying this. Lulu's in her 30s, with long bangs framing a pair of chunky, round hipster glasses. In the first 10 minutes of meeting her, she switches breezily between English and French and Spanish. At one point, a guy walks into the room and she starts chatting with him in what sounds like pretty decent Basque. And she is one of this new generation of winemakers that Hugo da Costa was talking about. After spending 16 years in France, she came home to run the winemaking program at Bruma. I asked her why. Even though, of course, Bordeaux is a huge reference and I love the wines and I th sincerely think it's the best wines in the world. It's amazing terroir. This is new. And when you do something and you, when you experiment something, you're actually, we're actually setting basis for what will go on for the next 50, 60, 80 years. And in, in, in old wine countries, well, that's been done. So I think that all of us, I mean, we're actually, I'm actually, for example, the second generation of enologists that are here. You know, we're just starting in wine years, that's nothing. So I think there's not a lot of wine regions in the world where we're that young and we're, where we're setting basis for a new industry. Like Phil Gregory, Lulu is also interested in making lighter wines that pair better with food. Now, for a long time, I think we had this image of hot-weathered countries where it was all about power and strength and tannins and alcohol and more, 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 no? And I want less, 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 less. I like uh, a lot of freshness. I love eating. I'm actually married to a chef. So I, I love food, and I think wine has to go with food. 
when you have a wine that's 100% strawberry jam. You give that to a chef, he's gonna kill you. He can't do a lot with it. But if you have a wine that has a lot of aromatic complexity, that has a touch of spice, a touch of, fru of fruit, a little bit of flowers, he can have a lot of fun with it. Blanco, no? Salud. Lulu lets me taste one of her latest rosés. And it barely even looks like a rosé. It's this pale, pale, peachy pink color. And it has this really light, really acidic flavor. Lulu sniffs it and says it reminds her of unripe strawberries. Like a green uh, strawberry. To me, it just seems like a picnic wine. Something I want to drink in a park on a sunny day, surrounded by friends eating pate or something. And while we're tasting it, Lulu explains that this part of Mexico has changed a lot since she was growing up. Used to be that if her family wanted a good meal, they'd cross the border and go to San Diego. Now, Americans come here for good food and wine. In some ways, she says, Baja has more in common with the U.S. than with other parts of Mexico. Yeah, I really do think that Ensenada and Baja California is a different Mexico. Of course, we're Mexicans and very proud of being Mexicans, but our history, I mean, our, the founding families of Ensenada were Russian, were Spanish, were Basque, uh, and that made us different. We're all Mexicans, but we all have different origins, and we are open to having even more of that blend, that misclan. South of the border, north of the border, that doesn't exist anymore. That border, you could build it 20 meters high, it won't stop what's happening today. Well, that's really interesting. Is it is it actually that integrated? Yeah, it is. Like, it's not uncommon for Mexican school children living in Tijuana to cross the border every morning to go to school in the U.S. And people on both sides of the border, they often just switch back and forth between Spanish and English. It's this very tight-knit thing, and people talk a lot about this idea that, like, oh, the border doesn't exist. But you can't really deny that the border does play a really important role in how winemaking developed in Mexico. You might even argue that Baja wine country wouldn't exist if the U.S. never outlawed alcohol during Prohibition, as I found out at the next winery I visited. We are in the border. At that time, the border was an easy thing, you know, to cross. How far are we from the border right now? We are around eight kilometers. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah. It's, uh, you see that mountain? At the, well, the clouds are here, but <laughs> where you see that mountain, actually, there is the, the fence. You can see the, the wall there. I'm wow. standing amid rows of neatly planted grapevines with Noel Tellez, who runs Bichi. This is one of the most talked about wineries in Baja. It's located in Tecate, a border town about 30 miles east of Tijuana. Tecate as in the beer? Yes, exactly as in the beer. In fact, the whole town of Tecate actually smells kind of like beer. It's like this hot, wet cereal smell on days when the brewery is active. But they've been making wine in Tecate just as long. In fact, these vines we're looking at were planted in the 1920s. The beginning was because of the prohibition. That's it. This is, it was a, a big production here in Tecate. You have to understand that the Las Vegas of that time was Tijuana. It was the casino. It was a big casino from Hollywood and California. They would come here. 
So they will, a lot of the wine that was produced was sold in there. But, you know, it was prohibited, so it was smuggled. Clandestinity is the, is the mother of many things. Everything started because of clandestinity. That Al Capone was buying probably wine here in Tecate or in the area. But probably it's true. It's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, contraband liquor always tastes better. <laughs> right. Yeah. You see a lot of the same theme here on the border. It's it's almost like the culture here evolved in response to like the sublimated desires of the United States, if that makes any sense. Like we outlaw alcohol, Baja starts making beer and wine. We outlaw gambling or prostitution or what have you, but then we just cross the border and get it anyway. I think of it almost like a shadow self. North of the border and south of the border, they're two halves of the same whole. And right now, there is a whole lot of demand for the wines that Noel is making here in Tecate. So about five years ago, Noel decided he needed a break from his law career. So he partnered with his brother Jair, a chef, to start making wine. And at first, they made those big, bold reds like Cabernet and Grenache using conventional winemaking methods. But then they hooked up with a French winemaker named Louis-Antoine Lutte. Louis-Antoine had no interest in those big, popular varietals. Instead, he was obsessed with an almost forgotten grape called the Mission. Well, Mission is uh, well, is the, the grape that was brought by the missionaries. It's very much used uh, in the old times, talking about 1700s onwards. It was used because it was a very high yield and very sturdy, very... It, it could grow in many, many hard conditions. But as soon as the newly... Well, all the other varietals, more French varietals and all that, started to, to prevail around the world, well, this uh, uh, varietal disappeared practically from the, from the map. Louis-Antoine was essentially stalking this grape across the globe, first in Chile, now in Baja. Now, for years, wine people have kind of looked down their nose at Mision. They said it made dull wine with no character. But it's starting to make a comeback. After five years of drought, winemakers in Baja are rediscovering its charms and learning how to coax better wine from it. So the Tellez brothers teamed up with Louis Antoine, and Bichi, as we know it, was born. Bichi means naked in, uh, in Yaqui language, which is from Sonora. Why did you choose that as the name? Wow, that's a big story. <laughs> it's a long story. But make, to make it short, is um, uh, when we started Vichy with uh, our French guy, Louis Antoine, so he got naked, well, with trousers, as French style, into a tank of wine to, to move the wine. So the next day, we, we receive a lot of uh, Facebook messages. Hey, what happened with the beachy, beachy, Francaise? And then we, we thought, hey, it's a great name for a wine. You know? That might be the uh, closest definition to je ne sais quoi. Uh, if we're talking about a flavor that's been added to wine. Jeez. <laughs> right. It's a little something extra, right? But it was fitting, too, because in a way, the wine that Beachy makes is naked, right? Like, 
Thanks to Louis Antoine's influence, the Tellez brothers stopped making wines in the conventional style and started making natural wines. Well, let's take a second here and talk about what natural wine even means. And that's tricky. Like so many things, there's not one definition. But there's some things that people seem to agree on that define it. One is the use of organically grown grapes. You've got the native yeasts from the area. And sometimes the wines are unfiltered. They've got little or no added sulfites. Basically, I think what it comes down to is that natural wines mean as little human intervention into that winemaking process as possible. Yeah, I think you summarized it well. But really, there is no one definition that everybody in the wine world can agree on. I think it's kind of like pornography. Like, you know it when you see it. It is barely understood. Uh, (laughs) Barely understood. But this is not a recipe or a formula. First of all, you have to try to understand your agriculture. Start working where you are with what you have and uh, to work in an organic or uh, sustainable way. Yeast is definitely a must. You have to start using the wild yeast, the yeast that is in in whatever you are working with, you know. We were adding uh, selected yeast, it is called. Which is basically the little bags that you buy, like from the pharmacy. Like that's the way conventional wine is made, and and and. But when you start using the the native or wild yeast, it's something else. It's incredible. I actually saw one of Beachy's sparkling rosés on the wine list at this trendy restaurant in Mexico City not long ago. The bubbles are made by those wild yeasts, and I guess they can be kind of unpredictable. Like the chef told me the bottles have a tendency to explode. 2017 uh, didn't explode uh, once, but uh, 16 it was a bit uh, more, uh, you know, we have been learning. So it's it's kind of like uh, the learning, the learning process. Yeah. They are alive. Biologically, there's a lot of going on going on there. The big difference with conventional wine is that because the industry, they want homogenic uh, formula that every time they make it, you will taste the same, you know, consistently. And the last thing that you have in natural wines is consistent. Natural wines, you never quite know what you're going to get. You have an idea, but when you taste it, there's uh, sometimes there's a, a few flavors in there that are, I'm going to call them interesting. <laughs> interesting is a diplomatic way to put it. Yeah, um, I'm a fan of the natural wines that I've tried. Uh, they're sometimes described as like funky, I think, because of the, the native yeasts. And and yeah, when I tasted that beachy sparkling rosé, it did kind of smell a little like cheese. But these natural wines are sometimes more acidic than conventional wines, and they're easy to drink. Natural wine people often describe it with a French term, glu-glu, that basically means glug-glug. We make it more glu-glu wine, something not, not so alcoholic, a wine that is so easy to drink that you just drink it totally. From experimenting with new varietals, to reviving old ones, to using wild yeasts, right now seems to be a particularly fertile time for winemaking in Baja. But for Hugo da Costa, the godfather, the best is yet to come. Mira, yo creo que lo más atrevido todavía no lo vemos. 
vamos a ver cosas mucho más atrevidas. Creo Look, I think we still haven't seen the most daring ideas. We're going to see much more daring ideas. I think right now we're still in a phase of reflection. Which of these new ideas are actually possible and which are just the madness of youth like we all had? I have to wonder if Ugo's talking here about his own son, his this lanky 26-year-old surfer kid named Lucas, who's doing all these wacky experiments in natural wine and vermouth and even mezcal, using his dad's winery like as his lab. Not all of these experiments are successful, but they're sure fun to watch. And they're a reminder of the great things that can happen in a melting pot, you know, when different people from all walks of life come together to pursue their dreams. Well, we've got quite the cast of characters lined up here. The influences and cultures that I've heard so far are the Italians, the Spaniards. There was a naked French guy who was wading through the vats. He had Al Capone and the milk-drinking Russians. We can't forget about them. Oh, are there... uh, Are there still milk-drinking Russians making wine in Baja? (laughs) Uh, You know, David Bibayov is the last one who's making wine, I think. And you probably won't find his bottles in a hip wine bar in Barcelona or Mexico City anytime soon. But yeah, he's still there. He's still making wine. Um, And even though the Russians are mostly gone, their cemetery is overgrown and basically forgotten... I can't help but wonder if those original daring settlers left some kind of imprint, something in the DNA of the valley as this place where brave, adventurous people have come to make their way in life. Well, when we were talking about the Miss Young Grape, you mentioned a drought. So what's going on with the water issues? What's the future look like down there for the Baja winemaking industry? Yeah, there was a pretty severe drought for the last uh, few years. This year was supposed to be better, but long term, I mean, it's tricky. Like Now that the valley is a big deal, it's in magazines everywhere, you have all these developers who are wanting to come in and open massive resorts with spas and golf courses. And growers are saying that that's going to suck up the already scarce water supply in the valley. But on the other hand, like, It's hard to make the numbers work if you do nothing but grow grapes and make wine. A lot of people are finding, you know, even if they're not massive developers, they're finding they need to have a small hotel and a restaurant in order to make the math work out. And all of those things take water. So the future is a little bit uncertain. You definitely have people wondering if the valley might be a victim of its own success. Well, it sounds like Baja, California is caught between a rock and a resort. Yeah, that's one way to put it. I mean, it really is this in-between place. You know, people here often say the border region is too American for Mexico and too Mexican for the United States. Well, that sounds like a perception thing. Baja really shouldn't be defined by its neighbors. No place should, even if they had some sort of influence on it. It's its own place. And I think it succeeded because of that beautiful chaos that was allowed to flourish undisturbed. I think that's exactly it. This lack of tradition and rules and oversight, this freedom from expectation, it lets all these adventurous people come here from all over the world and have the space to experiment. It turns out good stuff can happen when nobody's watching. That's reporter Maya Croft. 
Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer. Associate producer is Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, Jordan Pearson, and Connor Olmsted. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop needs to be colonized, and he's chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and OXO. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Be sure to check out our website, www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. You can get more info about this episode, including pictures of Maya's trip to Baja and some of the wineries that you heard about in this episode. Go check it out. Oh, and one more thing. If you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, we'd love for you to leave us a rating or write a review because it really helps other people find the show.